this is Millie Long, one of the co-editors-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Dr. Jazz Bahaj, and I am thrilled to welcome a guest today for our podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the newest ACG guideline on Barrett's esophagus. My guest today is Dr. Nicholas Shaheen from University of North Carolina. So, Nick, welcome. Thanks for having me, Millie. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, so we're all very excited about this guideline. It's been, I know, a, a work in progress, and we'll, we'll ask you a little bit about that for some time, but we're excited about a lot of the new concepts and the new guidance for the field. I know in this guideline, you've actually divided it into a number of different content areas, uh, starting with diagnosis and then screening, surveillance, and then two forms of treatment, both medical and endoscopic. And so I thought what I'd do is run down each of those categories and have you kind of highlight what the newest recommendations are for our community. There's a lot of really exciting things in here, Millie, and I'm, I'm happy to share them with the group. Fantastic. So let's start with diagnosis. You know, as a gastroenterologist, obviously we all do a lot of upper endoscopy. And one of the things we commonly see are these irregular Z lines and, and kind of, you know, some of us biopsy them. We, we kind of can't decide what to do with these. Does your guideline provide uh, some recommendations in that scenario? It does. And I think that the important take-home points are a few. And I think that these are really critical for people to do a lot of endoscopy. Number one, don't biopsy a Z-line that has less than a centimeter of excursion from the top of the gastric folds upwards. For these real small differences, these kind of mildly irregular Z-lines, the problem is that there's a lot of variability in people's perception of them. And what is one, one thing that's very clear is that the risk of cancer in such a person is very low. So you're essentially going to saddle them with a lifelong disease diagnosis for which they may get repeat endoscopies for perhaps no benefit at all and perhaps to their detriment. So in that situation, we recommend that people don't biopsy those Z lines. And if it's less than a centimeter, and you're not willing to call it Barrett's, then don't biopsy because you're going to be stuck with this reading of intestinal metaplasia at the GE junction which 20% of patients with chronic GERD have, and which has a pretty benign natural history. So you don't really want to do that. So even though it seems like you're not being thorough enough, or perhaps, you know, I really want to biopsy this, you really shouldn't be biopsying that lesion. That's really helpful. And I think that'll be practice changing for many of our listeners. Well, let's move on. We're at a diagnosis. Let's say we see, find something longer. You know, maybe it's a four centimeter segment that we're concerned about Barrett's. What do we do with that initial round of biopsies? I think we have a little bit better data in terms of how many we need to take, et cetera, with surveillance, but does the guideline tell us something about what we should be doing biopsy-wise initially? What we know about that first round is the following, that small numbers of biopsies can actually miss both intestinal metaplasia and dysplasia. And in fact, even for short segments of disease, we recommend that you get eight biopsies from the Barrett's if you can. And the real reason we recommend that is that smaller numbers stand the chance of there being intestinal metaplasia in a substantial piece of columnar tissue that you miss. Once you get above eight, you're in pretty good shape. The incremental yield above that is pretty low. For people with, say, the four centimeters that you just described, it's pretty easy. You can do the Seattle protocol, go four quadrants in every two centimeters, times two, that's going to get you your eight biopsies. That's terrific. 
for people with two centimeters, it gets a little dicier, right? And sometimes you can't even get eight biopsies out of it. So in that situation, we'd like to see at least six, okay? Mm -hmm. But pragmatically, you want to get more if you can, as many as you can, and certainly above, say, the one or two that's sometimes gotten. Those are the kind of numbers and what you're okay. thinking about. So just, I'm thinking what I'm going to do is stick in my mind the eight, uh, you know, and then that'll be my goal from this standpoint. So that's great. Okay, let's move on to screening. You've taught me over the years that sometimes a patient who's sent in for screening, it may not be ideal. That may, may not be the patient that we need to screen. Perhaps the person who drove them in is actually the person that we need to screen. So who should be screened for Barrett's? Yeah, and it's, it's one of the cruel jokes of our profession that, as you know, many times the folks that are coming in for endoscopy are not necessarily the people who would most benefit from endoscopy. And this is another good example of that. We know that there are a variety of risk factors for Barrett's that go beyond just GERD. I mean, we talk a lot about, obviously, oh, Let's find the patients with chronic heartburn, and we're, those are the ones that we're going to be doing screening on. And, and you know, certainly that's, you know, that is one of the things that we use to guide us, but there's a panoply of other risk factors that are useful in this situation that we use to help kind of stratify risk. And, and that's what you should be looking for here as well. And there are things like, is the patient obese? Is the patient male, it turns out that men are at markedly increased risk for both Barrett's. And then of course, amongst those with Barrett's, they're the ones that are most at risk of cancer. And indeed, 80% of esophageal adenocarcinomas occur in men. So that's uh, something that we call out as well. We had quite a bit of spirited discussion about whether or not we should mention race because race is a social construct. It's not, frankly, ideal for using in guidelines. And we're, as you know, we're trying to get away from using race as a risk stratifier in guidelines. Unfortunately, we don't really understand the genetic and socioeconomic underpinnings that make being white a risk factor for this cancer, but be that as it may, that is a strong risk factor for this cancer. And then other things as well, tobacco smoking, family history, strong risk factor for Barrett's or esophageal adenocarcinoma, first degree relative. That's somebody you're going to want to pay attention to. These are all useful risk factors when you're kind of thinking through whether or not a patient deserves consideration for getting a screening exam. Absolutely. So don't use just reflux symptoms, really be thoughtful about it and take into consideration all of these components. Exactly. Let's move on to surveillance. One of the questions I had is, you know, obviously we've got a lot of new techniques. There's things like chromoendoscopy, and obviously we've got much more high definition scopes, lots of things to do. Is there a recommendation for type of surveillance that needs to be done once we've diagnosed Barrett's? What should we be using? Yeah, it's a great question. And there is a lot of technology out there and it's a bit confusing. We recommend that you use your best white light endoscope, which hopefully in most units nowadays is a high definition white light endoscope and chromoendoscopy. Uh, and that can be as simple as narrowband imaging or FICE, whatever's on that scope. That's fine. You don't need to spray anything. 
it's certainly fine if you want to use a vital stain like acetic acid or methylene blue, and those have been shown to be helpful, but not more so than just narrow band imaging. So for many folks, it's just pop the button, essentially. I guess the, the, the key pragmatic point that I would make is that the single most important part of that exam in terms of yield is the initial observation of the Barrett's. It's not the random biopsies, although we talk about that a lot. It's looking very closely for any lesions in the Barrett's. And that's where 90 plus percent of the yield on that exam is. So taking your time, looking very closely with high definition white light endoscopy, as well as hopefully virtual chromo endoscopy that you have on your scope, that's the easiest thing to use. And, and really spending your time doing that before grabbing your surveillance biopsies is gonna hold you in good stead. Yeah, it's so interesting. I do a lot of work in inflammatory bowel disease, and we obviously do surveillance there as well in the colon. And it's the exact same for us. You know, it's not necessarily that chromo is some magic. It's actually the careful look that is most important in really being able to target those biopsies. So I think it's a comparable message. And that virtual chromo works. You can certainly dye spray if you want. A careful look under white light. Those are all kind of general options, which frankly, hopefully all of our listeners have available in their endo unit. Yeah, I would suspect so. And although there's a lot of other technology out there, unlike our recommendations for screening, where the, for the first time ever, we've recommended some non-endoscopic screening methods like cytosponge, we don't, in surveillance, recommend most of the new technology, although there's some really compelling new technology. Unfortunately, the levels of evidence have not yet gotten to the point where we can say, yes, this is definitely an add-on that you should be using always or in, in whatever circumstance. So, so we're really talking about making sure you get enough biopsies, making sure you do that careful examination. Uh, if you get that done, then you're doing state-of-the-art. Perfect. Okay, so this one's a little bit of a question that I think is going to hard, be hard to have one answer to, but surveillance intervals. I know these have changed over the years and, and likely, I, I suspect these need to be personalized based on, on certain factors and certainly, you know, whether or not there's dysplasia, I'm sure, and the Barrett's plays a role, but is there a simple gratification that you can share with our listeners in terms of trying to best set intervals for surveillance? Sure, and it's a terrific question, and this is an area where gastroenterologists make perhaps more mistakes than anything else we do in the care of Barrett's esophagus patients. At least a, a third of the time when we analyze national data, the wrong surveillance interval is being recommended. So it's simple. It's based on the length of the Barrett's. And this, this is a consensus that the entire world is coming around now. We used to say for non-dysplastic Barrett's, it was every three years. And that was easy to remember, but it's clear that short segments of Barrett's are at lo lower risk than long segments of Barrett's, and that stratifying based on the length of the Barrett's is a good idea. For that reason, for the first time, these guidelines recommend stratifying by length three centimeters. If it's less than three centimeters, it's five years. If it's more than three centimeters, it's three years. Mm -hmm. And you know, people get worried about that. Is that not conservative enough? Are we going to have interval malignancy? The answer is that yes, it's possible regardless of what interval we choose. And, and it's well documented that we do see interval neoplasia, 
but that these are evidence-based with respect to what we know about the natural history of the lesion and that they are backed up by substantial data. And, and in fact, this is where uh, several other recommending groups have ended up um, in terms of recommendations for surveillance. So three and five, easy to remember, um, you know, that for, uh, for the listeners, and that's what these guidelines recommend. Okay, let's move into treatment, because um, particularly since I threw out that, uh, well, what about low-grade dysplasia? I mean, I think that's something we would treat, and I'm going to have you teach us about that. But let me start with medical treatment. Obviously, in my training many years ago, the PPI was integral. Is the PPI still integral? Are we still recommending PPI for every patient with Barrett's, and is that indefinite? The short answer is that yes, unless the patient has had a surgical anti-reflux procedure that we know is effective and is, there's no inflammation in the esophagus, that generally speaking, we do recommend PPI maintenance therapy at at least once a day for all patients with Barrett's esophagus. That's based on some data that suggests that patients maintained on a PPI may have a lesser risk of progression to neoplasia in their Barrett's than those maintained either on an H2 blocker or nothing. There was a quite interesting randomized control trial that came out of the UK since the last time we wrote these guidelines called the ASPECT trial that actually suggested the combination of aspirin and a high-dose PPI may actually be the best maintenance therapy of all. However, we didn't end up recommending that for a couple of reasons. One is that interestingly, it wasn't cancer risk that went down in those patients, but it was overall mortality. So perhaps it was other effects of the aspirin, which is good to remember because lots of patients with Barrett's have other risk factors that make aspirin therapy potentially useful for them. Anyway, to make a long story short, we decided that to recommend at least once daily PPI therapy, and then you can decide about other add-ons based on the patient profile. Okay. No, that's great. And what about endoscopic? Which patients qualify for endoscopic eradication therapy? Yeah, great question. Let, let's start with the easy ones, the ones on both ends. Okay. Patients with intramucosal cancer, patients with high-grade dysplasia, unequivocally based on the literature available to us, benefit from endoscopic therapy. So those patients are going to be ones that you're want, going to want to do EMR on. If they've got any nodularity, then you're going to do ablation. Conversely, patients on the other end of the spectrum, those with non-dysplastic disease, by and large, are not going to benefit from ablative therapy. And the reason for that is their risk of progression is so low at baseline that trying to further lower using endoscopic therapy has not been shown to be effective and almost certainly isn't cost-effective. So those are the two ends. Don't, don't ablate patients with non-dysplastic, ablate patients with um, high-grade or, or intramucosal cancer. The kind of Nether ground right now, the area that we're not 100% sure who needs it, who doesn't, is the patients with low-grade dysplasia. Mm -hmm. Those patients are at increased risk, clearly, compared to those with non-dysplastic disease, but much lower risk than those with high-grade dysplasia. We have been, in general, saying that that's an okay thing to do, ablating patients with, with low-grade dysplasia, based largely on a study out of the Netherlands that showed that the patients who got ablation had much diminished risk of going on to either high grade or cancer. And it was a well done trial. But interestingly, the real questions that you'd like answered, which are things like, well, couldn't we just intervene when they had high grade then? I mean, are we really, you know, do we need to go now? And what about cost issues? What about 
patient reported outcomes. There's a lot of stuff we don't know yet about that situation. So we have endorsed both strategies. You can do surveillance and we give you surveillance intervals for low grade, or you can do ablation for such patients. And it really is a shared, it's a perfect place for shared decision-making because going through the pluses and minuses of this, it's just smart from the clinician's perspective, because if you do get a complication and you don't want the patient saying, well, gosh, I didn't even know that surveillance was an option for me. You really want to have gotten into this with them and make sure that they're comfortable with whatever they, they choose uh, as a strategy. That's great. And I, I think that the shared decision-making is, is, is right, particularly when there's such both good options, I think it sounds like based on the data. Now, it just finally, I know that this is a very specialized skill. Obviously, I don't do endoscopic eradication of Barrett's. Is this something that the guideline recommends can be done anywhere, or are the evidence stronger at kind of at tertiary centers? Where should these patients be treated? Great question, Millie. And the answer to your question is that they can be treated very well in private practices. Most of the data. Uh, does come from academic centers, perhaps not surprisingly, but it's all about experience and volume. There's nothing special or magical about being in an academic place. The data demonstrate that you can get really terrific results if you're doing these procedures in practice, as long as you're getting enough cases, as long as you, you know, you can't do four of these a year and frankly expect to do them well. It's just not going to happen. You're, you're not going to have adequate skills and keep up adequate skills to be able to get the kind of results that you want. And we actually discuss what you can expect to get. You should be getting at least 75% complete eradication of intestinal metaplasia in your unit, or you may be doing something wrong. The, the obvious question is, how much do you need to be doing? Most of the data suggests somewhere along the lines of at least a couple cases a month of ablation to be good at this. And, and then otherwise, things like complete eradication rates may not be where they need to be, or recurrence rates may be higher than you'd like to see them. So, so those are the kind of numbers that you're looking at to, to get where you need to go. But commitment to it and really being good at it and having a team set up to do it, it's not just about the docs, it's about the nurses in the room, the techs in the room, knowing what you're doing and how to do it. That's the real key here. Docs tend to think it's all about me. It ain't all about you. You know, it's about the team. It is certainly. Medicine is all about the teamwork. That is for sure. Well, Nick, this has been a fantastic 20 minutes or so. We've learned so much about Barrett's esophagus. Thanks so much for joining us. And just as a plug to our listeners, the guideline uh, is certainly available from the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And Nick and his co-authors have written a very nice companion piece that is uh, in red section with clinical cases and how to apply this guideline. So please do check that out. And we'll look forward to uh, seeing you or hearing you next month for the next AJG podcast. 